Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's show, we discuss UAPs again. But this time, I'm touching Brett's exposed UFO-specific nerve by taking the controversial stance that everything we've seen that has convinced us that ETs are here are actually just tricks of light and camera lens and perfections. And then Brett discusses one of the most influential books in history and one of his personal favorites, a piece of literature that tries to bring purpose to even the worst kinds of suffering, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Who knew that searching for life's meaning could be such a morose journey? And just for the record, I still believe UAPs are real. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. Yeah, how are you? Look at those eyes. Dude, I have got to tell you about my first ever cutaway. So I pitched. Okay. I pitched. It was, fortunately, it was pretty early. I think it was around 3,500 feet. I had no inflation, right? It looked like I rolled my tail too tight. Something was caught. It looks like my canopy was sewn shut. Anyway, I spent a little time trying to clear the malfunction and obviously just decided to cut away. Went for my reserve, but my hands weren't working right. Finally got my handles pulled, and then my reserve deployed, but it was a really small canopy. It was like the size of your main, and it was elliptical. At this point, I'm under 2,000 feet. I'm like, I can't worry about this right now. I just need to find a good spot to land. There's tons of people on the ground, tons of parachutes in the air. Of course, it's super windy, but I turn to the wind. I see a good landing spot. It looks like I'm going to land just short of these power lines, and it's, but it's looking good, and then my canopy kind of collapses on one side and I look up and I see the entire thing do like a half front flip, basically like a 180 degree rotation around this, the lateral axis, if that makes sense. Anyway, I'm pulling on the rears, the toggles, I'm spreading my risers apart. I'm trying to get this thing flying, right? I hit the ground, but I sort of PLF like we're supposed to just tuck and roll. And next thing I know, I wake up, I'm in the airstream. <laughs> I was at the rest area right before getting to Camp V, like an hour out of Camp V. And I was like, Brie, I just had my first cutaway. It was all a dream. I couldn't wait to tell you about it on the show because I know everybody loves hearing about dreams. Pretty much the classic skydiving dream, the one I used to have when I first started (laughs) back when I was a young Thundercat like yourself. Uh, I used to dream about having a malfunction and then going to cut away, but my cutaway cables ran all the way up to the canopy, you know, the <laughs> 16 feet. And it was like, a, did you ever watch a Pee-wee's Big Adventure when he's pulling the chains out of his, the bike chain out of his saddlebags and it just goes and goes and goes forever? No, but I can well, imagine the, uh, the the tissues coming out of the clown's sleeve. Exactly. But this, I remember this was more pulling like, the handle, yeah. just over and over and over <laughs> and over and just never, just never getting to the end of it classic skydiving dream i so this more was like my hand was like weak kind of like when you wake up and like your fingers aren't working i don't know if you have that strong hand strong take my strong hand (laughs) (laughs) anyway so i had my first cutaway and i i barely made it out alive but here i am it sounds like to tell the tale you may may have failed several (laughs) steps along the way but uh i imagine you were probably 
dreaming about skydiving because we just went on that amazing skydiving trip together, the uh, second annual Content Clearinghouse skydiving trip. Wait, that wasn't a dream? That really happened? I know it did seem fantastical, but it all really happened. And I got to tell you, man, the Sup Girl Boogie 2021 with Mike Silva out in Wisconsin was quite possibly the greatest skydiving weekend of my life. It was, uh, like, what was so cool to me about it was every single person there either had possibly hundreds of hours of tunnel time. They've flown, most of them have flown in a a coaching sense with myself or Mike Silva, or they all worked at the wind tunnel or currently do work at the wind tunnel. So, like, the skill level was astronomical. And it was just cool to be able to put together these really complex jumps and, like, pretty much anything we could imagine we were able to do. And that is not common at a skydiving event, at least not in my, in my experience. It was it was very humbling for me. Um, there's a saying in the aviation world, which would pretty much apply to this too, but I'm sure you've heard me use the expression hanging onto the tail. And it's kind of used for like somebody that's in simulator training or somebody learning a new airplane or a new pilot or whatever. And they're or just me like, trying to get the end of my cutaway cables. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and it's just like a, an expression, like they're behind the airplane. They're not thinking, you know, you got to be thinking ahead of things. What's the next step? Um, that's kind of how I felt on these jumps. Um, especially with guys like you and Mike, like I don't really know how to angle fly and that's what everybody does these days apparently. And also just how quick you are and how Mike is like, I was telling Mike about this, um, because we got to spend some really quality time with dream livers, Mike and Alyssa, uh, post skydiving. And it's just like, they don't think before transitioning or diving or i mean it's just like everything seems instantaneous um especially watching you guys jump when we did a three-way crew ball jump to to uh get started so I, I know you guys had competed in the past so i can't expect exactly to be on your same level but um i i i want to crawl from the tail a little further up the fuselage for next year maybe end up in the cockpit one day I think you're being way too humble, Brett. You're uh, way better at skydiving than most people, and uh, especially most people with your experience. So I'd say that you're firmly grasping with a <laughs> nu- white knuckle to the, the camera step handle. Okay. You're a little bit ahead of the tail. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, I've decided to um, put all of my efforts into this new sport that I did not know existed. This was something that I attempted for the first time at uh, Mike and Alyssa's lake house, their family lake house in Minnesota. Are you familiar with an e-foil board? Only from seeing uh, pictures of you guys doing it. Uh, It was pretty much like the one wheeling of water sports. I'm not sure if the comparison uh, totally translates it, it's only if it completely <laughs> replaces swimming because that's what one wheel has done to walking yeah. for me. <laughs> well, then I, I guess that that uh, analogy does stand. Um, so you you know I think most people might know what a hydrofoil is. If not, it's sort of like an airfoil for water, right? It's a wing that uh, you see those boats that race, but they lift out of the water because they have a wing underneath the water that's lifting them. Um, so this is like a wakeboard or like maybe a short surfboard 
but instead of needing a team of people to do awesome things like a you know a friend with like a ninety thousand dollar boat to pull you and then uh, a friend that's gonna like make sure that you don't get run over by other boaters when you let go of the rope it's you replace the team with a briefcase style Tesla battery that runs a motor, an electrically driven motor that's attached to a hydrofoil that's about 30 inches on a mast that's underneath the water, basically a, like a like a knife's edge mast under this board. And you get it going with a Bluetooth remote you're holding in your hand. This thing goes up like 30 miles an hour, which of course we were doing it on like uh, less than half, like less than 50% power of what it's capable of. But you're sort of on your belly, awkwardly getting drug through the water at a high speed. And then eventually you get up on your knees and then you're kind of cruising around and, and then eventually you stand up. But then the real magic happens when you find just the right balance um, to get that fulcrum, that, that hydrofoil lifts you up out of the water. And all of a sudden the ride is incredibly smooth, like one wheel on pavement smooth. And you can carve and you can turn and you can cruise. It is the greatest thing I've ever done. It is amazing. So screw skydiving. <laughs> well, there's no I in team, but there is an I in foil. You want to see so my that bruise, probably though? probably explains why it's a solo sport. You want to see my butt Oh, real man. Quick? <laughs> sure, Brett. Show me your uh, butt there. Did you fall on the board or hit the foil or what? I think it's just from the water. And then I got this. Whoa. <laughs> I, it's not really showing up on my... Uh, arm here too but yeah we so what you get thrown over the handlebars in the water <laughs> real hard or something if you pitch backwards too aggressively the hydrofoil sort of launches you out of the water or when you're starting to get it and you're balancing and you're coming up out of the water um and you get too high the prop will come out of the water and then it's like instant deacceleration and then you'll sort of cave down back into the water at a high speed so it, it takes i mean it took us a full day basically to not completely suck um we all took some pretty good falls but you know the water is forgiving sort of so uh so how did you guys have access to this thing does, does someone there own it like so Mike, how, how uh how easy it is it's gonna be for me to get on one of these <laughs> well um for the very low price of twelve thousand nine hundred and forty five dollars i think last uh i checked one can be yours um, the way that we were doing this, so there's a, uh, a company in Minnesota and the, the, the owner of the company, the guy that rented us this board, he was a, a professional wake surfer. He said he just like had enough of wake surfing. He kind of lost interest. He was, lost interest. He was burnt out. And then this thing came along and it's totally reinvigorated his love of this, you know, being on the water. And, um, so usually you would rent the board from him for two hours at a time and you get a lesson and you're kind of supervised, but Mike and a few of his action sports um, enthusiast friends, if you will, have rented from him, uh, you know, several times, many, many times and have built a bit of a relationship, a bit of a rapport with him. So a little bit extra dinero and we got to rent it for a 24 hour period. And basically he gave us like a lesson and, and, uh, delegated supervision duties to Mike. And so we just, we had like a full day on this thing and, and we had two batteries 
And the four of us just like each took turns until our body was too banged up and we were too tired. And then we just like let somebody else go until the battery ran dry. And then we'd swap out the batteries. And that was pretty much like our 24 hour period was trying to get good at the e-foil. And at the end, like we were all cruising on the foil. Like we definitely got we definitely picked it up. I'm super addicted to it now. And I want one. I'm just going to throw that out there. My birthday is in November for those uh, wealthy Patreon listeners. <laughs> I'll put it on the uh, CCH credit card. <laughs> Perfect. It's a business expense. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And now, Brett, I'm very bummed I missed the remainder <laughs> of the trip. I had to leave before you did. I didn't get to have it, head out to the lake house with you. And that sounds like it might have been as much fun as skydiving. The e-foil, man, I'm telling you. The one wheel of water sports. Completely replace swimming. Well, how's uh, dad life treating you? Uh, Dad life is great. Um, My daughter, Isla, started school for real uh, kindergarten last Thursday. And uh, it's been three days of her being away all day, which is great because I get to spend time with Violet. Uh, Like we started potty training, which not as fun as it sounds. But <laughs> it doesn't sound. I fun. do. I did realize how much I am gonna miss spending all day with Isla, and also I realized that this is how it's just kind of, I guess, part of being a parent. But it, this is how like children begin to slip away from their parents because up until now, she's been basically with me all day, every day. I've been one of the primary influences, uh, myself and uh, Melissa. And she hasn't had, you know, other than going to hang out with friends or whatever. It's mostly supervised, but not a whole lot of unsupervised uh, outside influence. And it dawned on me when we sent her off to school that, oh, this is where children start to develop, like, their own attitudes and their own views of the world that are not shaped by their parents that's and awful. it's very exciting well. it's exciting but at the same time yeah it is a little sad because i know that this is like it's kind of the end of an era of just us being like all day best pals and yeah. i want to make my one like one of my primary goals at this point with her and with violet she gets older is to keep that like best friend relationship alive you know i'd love to have a little best friend you know when she's 18 years old still being uh going strong like that so well i have no doubt kind of like a paradigm shift and uh maybe for her 18th birthday you can buy her an e-foil and she'll and love if you she's forever. not into it old dad will take care of it for you <laughs> exactly <laughs> So I did hear you had an interesting off top to bring to the show today. I'm very curious. I was kind of kind of teasing its uh, controversial nature, and uh, I actually I have a feeling that you're gonna have some thoughts on this because you know you and I both love UAPs and we truly Ooh. believe that we've been visited. <laughs> Correct? Would is that an accurate assessment? One hundred percent. But Brett. It's also important to keep an open mind because it is easy to be blinded by our expectations and our hopes. Absolutely. So, Confirmation bias. Exactly. And I found this video when I was sitting in the airport after uh, the, the trip to uh, see Mike, which was quite possibly the worst travel experience of my life. 
Um, I almost didn't make it to the boogie because they wanted me to open my parachute in the airport, reserve and main. And I told them basically, if that's the case, I'm just going to leave. And so I had to go back, check my rig. Basically, I checked it in late. It was a possibility you wouldn't even be on the same plane as me. So I was stressed about it not showing up. And then it got there. This, the trip was great. On the way back, my ID wouldn't scan. They were using some scanner at the at the uh, Minneapolis airport that I'd never seen before. And so they made me go through all this extra security. And it just took like an additional like 15, 20 minutes. It was a huge pain in the ass. But while I was waiting to get on the plane, I was just kind of scrolling through YouTube. And I found this video by the Corridor Crew, which is a page that I love. They do a... Uh, uh, a series called VFX Artists React where they bring in VFX uh, professionals and they show them like good and bad VFX shots and have them describe like, oh, how this be created in the industry? Why would it look this bad? Oh, why does it look this good? And they were uh, two of them, Nico and Sam, which are like two of the guys that are in the corridor crew. They did a VFX Artists Reacts video where they were debunking UFO footage. And at first I was like, eh, I'm already a pretty strong believer, but uh, I guess I'll go ahead and watch this anyways. And I got to tell you, it, it turned out to be extremely fascinating. Now, big part of it was them, so they're breaking down these famous UAP shots and a lot of it was explaining how cameras work and how cameras can sometimes deceive the eye. And my first thought was like, well, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And in this case, when you have a VFX background, everything looks like a VFX shot. But as I started to learn about like how camera irises work and how they how the images are processed, it really did start to make a lot of sense, like how some of these shots, why they look the way they do and how it can kind of convince you that you're seeing things if you already have kind of like a preordained conclusion about what you're expecting to see sure i, I have so they, no no doubt that a, a lot of uap footage is misidentification of like a bird a satellite a balloon um a lens flare probably fake a lot of it but you know there's still that small percentage of things that cannot be explained uh, even after going through pretty much every other hypothesis. Well, let me run some explanations <laughs> by you and see what you think. Okie doke. So the first video, I'd never seen this video before. I don't know if it has any kind of famous name, but I'll explain it to you. You can also watch this video, which will be in the show notes. So it's a night vision shot, and the camera is zooming in on what looks like a triangular craft in the sky. And as they zoom in on it, basically the shape never changes. It's always a triangle. Is this ringing a bell to you? Is this in China? Somewhere. It's okay. somewhere. It's somewhere. I, I have seen <laughs> yeah. that video from somewhere. So they explain that uh, the a camera has an iris on it. And the quality of that iris is kind of represented by the amount of blades that are present in the iris. And the blades are what either come together or, or slide apart to allow the iris to open and close. It lets more or less light in. And like on a really high-end camera, you might have, you know, 50, 60 blades. So the iris is essentially round, even though like if you get down microscopically to it, you might be able to see some straight lines around the edges, but that's where the blades are intersecting. But on extremely cheap cameras, and they said sometimes on these night vision cameras, it may just be a three-blade iris. 
And when you have a three blade iris, and then you're also working with something called bokeh, which is, have you ever seen a photo like, it's like a photo, something in the foreground and in the background, there may be like Christmas lights, but they're all out of focus and they're all kind of shaped like the iris of a camera. They're shaped kind of like polygons or something. This um, is like a really famous. Of, uh, yeah, every every Christmas card I've ever received. So they said that with this particular f- footage, they think that this uh, this triangular craft is kind of a- an artifact of the lens and the iris potentially being a three blade iris and then the object being so far away that it's not focusable. And so what you're getting is a three bladed bokeh created by this cheap aperture and just the, the focal distance of the camera. And when I saw that, I was like, man, I feel like this is actually going to be a really awesome video because I've never seen anyone offer any kind of rational explanation like that. But that one wasn't really like, that was just kind of the appetizer to me because I had never seen that footage before. But the next one, Brett, I think you might be familiar with the go fast footage. I am not responding to, to this. <laughs> okay. that, well, how, how, how do we discredit the eyewitnesses? They're not, they're, they're looking at something with their eyes. Oh, I mean, they there's definitely something there. And that were tracked on the radar. VFX guys. Uh-huh. They, are not offering they're not saying this is a this is definitely what's happening but the, what they're saying is that this is what cameras do and it's potential that something could have been misidentified based on the way cameras work so the go fast footage if you haven't seen it it shows something down by the water moving like at insane speeds and you can see it like rushing across the the white caps it's just like it looks like it's moving 5000 miles an hour and what they said is this could be something like a bird, but filmed in parallax. And are you familiar with parallax? Yeah, just the idea that like um, two, when you have like uh, binocular vision. So if you're looking at an object and you close one eye and then close the other eye, how uh, it you're getting two different perspectives, basically. So parallax is when you have foreground elements that are moving at different speeds from the background elements. And I, I'm familiar with that from like two-dimensional video games. They use that uh, as a way to create like depth to make it look like the characters in the foreground are moving really fast and the background is just barely creeping by. And they did this experiment where they put a little uh, put like a little object on the end of a, a pointer wand and then they drug that object across the ground slowly. And then with a camera phone, they moved it the opposite direction. And it made that thing look like it was going like a thousand miles an hour across the ground. And so they didn't really have an explanation for what he might have been filming. But they said it really could have been anything. It could have been a bird or it could have been, you know, like a balloon or something. But it's like the plane is moving 600 miles across the ground one way this uh, this object could be moving you know maybe 20 miles an hour the other direction and when the camera locks on the target appears to be moving at ungodly speeds when in reality it's the camera platform that's moving that fast and the ground speed is an illusion created by the camera locking on while moving away and that's not to say that whatever they filmed i mean it, it really could have been something crazy but i think it's interesting to know that there is a potential explanation 
just based on the physics of what was happening with the airplane that could have created that illusion. At a certain point, it just it does feel like you're just trying to explain things in a way that it's like, well, it obviously isn't uh, a craft that behaves in these abnormal ways because that there's no way that exists. So it's got to be a bird, right? Doesn't it feel a little bit like that? I mean, I I might agree with this uh, this take depending on the other evidence that was available. But at a certain point, and this is why I've looked at these other cases with kind of a different perspective, when you have radar footage, when you have the government saying, like, this is legitimate footage, when you have fighter pilots and you hear their genuine reactions on video recording saying, what the hell is that? Look at it. It's flying against the wind. I mean, it's it's not just like some grainy-ass video. Like, that's what we're seeing. Like, they... They saw things with their with their eyeballs. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not discounting it. I'm just I just think that it's very interesting hearing another take on it, especially another take from people who I've been watching for a long time and I really respect just their industry knowledge of what you can do with cameras and VFX and I agree with you. I think that the eyewitness testimony is the most compelling mm-hmm. but before we get to eyewitness testimony oh this is let's controversial talk about, let's talk about commander fravor's video oh no you're really uh, going after the the gold <laughs> of the uap evidence i'm not going after it at all i am a secondhand reporter and i'm on your side i believe in these things but so they point out that so in Commander Fravor's video, there is like a very distinctive UFO shape of whatever he's locked onto. And what they point out is that the target rotates as the camera rotates. So like the profile of that shape rotates with the camera. And I've never noticed that before. But if you watch closely, the little disc shaped thing with a little ball on top of it that he's recording, the, the horizon line and that rotate like at almost the exact same speed. So they point out the shape of the object is again potentially determined by the camera that's recording it and uh that may have something to do with the way that the that ir camera is processing light or something to do with the shape of the sensor and that parallax motion again could describe the speed attributed to the object and what they posit is that what you are seeing on the FLIR was actually uh, a heat lens flare, the shape of sunlight blooming off of a reflective object in the sky interpreted by an IR camera. Now, they didn't have a theory for what it was reflecting off of, and they did admit that this one was the hardest to explain, and it is admittedly unidentified. So, like, don't take any of this as evidence that I don't believe in these very credible accounts, especially from people like Commander Fravor. I think, like you, that the eyewitness testimony from these credible witnesses is the most compelling thing. So much more compelling than fuzzy dot videos, which you know I've told you before that I'm kind of tired of seeing fuzzy dots that everyone loses their mind over. Like To me, this whole thing, when I look at Commander Fravor's video, I'm like, I guess it's kind of weird, but I'm also not a... IR camera just expert. for accuracy's sake as well. I don't, I don't think it is Fravor's video. I think uh, him and his wing person, wingman, saw this object, went back to the ship, and then they launched another uh, F sixteen, and that 
uh, next aircraft got the video. But I mean, it was the same. I, I, it was the same, air, you know, boat that these uh, same squadron, I think. But yeah, I don't know. I was just throwing that out there. Yeah, and I'm like 100% with you. When I hear Commander Fravor talk about what he saw, it's like, I have no reason to discount that. In fact, I think it's probably the best evidence we have. And uh, I think that kind of that kind of testimony is so much more compelling than any footage I've ever seen. I think it's still strange that we haven't seen any high-def footage with all of the amazing cameras that exist, not just cell phones, but, I mean, it's not hard to buy a camera with an amazing zoom lens. And uh, people have those all over the world. And so I do think it's strange that this footage has never been captured like that. I mean, there, there's but there's other stance, photos out there. I mean, uh, I will refer you to Leslie Keen's novel, UFOs, which I talked about on the show. Ah, covered yeah. on the show. Yep, there's there's a and mountain of evidence. That's like what's so strange about people discounting it is like what what is the you know, the final piece of evidence that'll finally convince people because there's actually like a mountain of this. <laughs> well, I mean my stance hasn't changed. Yeah. I am still hundred percent on board. Well, um, I'm happy to hear that. I I thought I was I, I just I, I was worried I was gonna have to reconvert you. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I was just trying to start a fight on the show today, but uh, I do think it's important to approach such an arcane subject with a truly objective mind and not just see what we want. And I think that it's very easy to fall into that camp, especially with something that's like this this otherworldly, but also this important. And you know that's why I thought a video like this is important. Even for somebody like you, like me, that are believers, I think you should watch. Yeah, the video I, I absolutely agree with that. It, but I also say, let the skeptics be skeptical. Let the scientists look at this with an unbiased opinion. At this point, I'm a contentologist. I want every little scratch on the lens and fuzzy blur to be a UFO. <laughs> That's my take. <laughs> is that is that part of being a contentologist? I have confirmation bias running through my veins. I just want to have fun and think about awesome things. <laughs> give me UFOs. Give me e-foils. I'm, I, any day. I don't think week. I'm the. I, I don't think I'm your guy to uh, evaluate this subject matter with the most objective view anymore. Well, maybe that's the reason I brought it to you because maybe you should be objective, even though you are a believer, because it's probably one of the most important things about science is being you're objective. Right. You're absolutely right. You've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Brett no longer believes in UFOs. I did everyone. not say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll leave uh, this link in the show notes and uh, you can check it out. Let me know what you think. And then, uh, hey, if you guys want to continue this argument on one of our social media platforms, hit us up. Send us an email. Let us know what you think about it. Start UFOs. a Twitter feud. With Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, perfect. In our honor. <laughs> well, um, so besides that so video, how about, yeah. Yeah, content, content circuit. circuit. It's what that time. Well, besides all the sick skydiving footage that we watched post uh, Sup Girl Boogie, um, I, per Mike's recommendation, I'm now listening to a book on tape called The Night Circus, and I'm really enjoying it. And also, I've been revisiting some suggestions from you, uh, the Darknet Diaries podcast is back in the queue. Um, very interesting, very disturbing. 
if you're like me and you've kind of burnt out on a lot of your favorite podcasts and you're looking for something new, a little non-fiction-y, a little internet-y, maybe a little dark, Darknet Diaries, pretty awesome. What's the Night Circus? I already like the Darknet Diaries. I'm sold on that So one. the Night Circus is like a fantastical fiction story uh, about a circus that just sort of shows up every once in a while and it's kind of the talk of the town and you don't really know what it's doing there or why it shows up in the way it does and it's there's nothing really happening in the daytime but there are these little snippets throughout this story of entering it at night and how you enter this tent and it smells like caramel apples and there's acrobats and you go over here and there's fortune tellers and it's just like this pretty much like a the most amazing piece of entertainment um, is this like traveling magical circus. But then you find out that there's these magicians out there that may not be um, may not be illusionists. They might be the real deal. Oh. It's very it's very fun. And, uh, you know, when I get a really good recommendation from one of my friends that it's like they're, they're saving that content recommendation because they know I have a long and uh, arduous circuit ahead of me as a professional contentologist. So when they drop a bomb on me, I will take that bomb and <laughs> right into my ear holes. Exactly. I love hearing about amateur contentologists <laughs> dropping some recommendations on you or I. It seems like our message is Everyone getting Everyone had to start somewhere. We we used to be amateur contentologists, and look at us now. <laughs> Still relatively amateur. How about you? What's on the circuit? Dude, I've been on a documentary kick lately, and specifically like a drug war documentary kick. So um, it started with the Hulu documentary Sasquatch by David Holdhouse. And David Holdhouse is like this deep investigative reporter who he was like embedded with neo-Nazis. He was, he uh, reported a story on these like meth addicts that uh, they would get these like statues from China that were made of meth, kind of like a dragon. And then they would like chip pieces of meth on it. And they'd party for like three days straight but uh, this story, Sasquatch, is is about him investigating this uh, triple homicide that happened in, I think, Humboldt County, somewhere in the Emerald Triangle where all the marijuana is grown in California. But it was a triple homicide that was attributed to a Sasquatch. Like the people were all torn up and ripped to shreds and there were Bigfoot footprints all over the place just like in the early 90s. And he was living up there when it happened and he heard this. And so he goes back like 30 years later and investigates it. It's absolutely fascinating. It's four-parter. But then that, I was looking up, like, what's his other work? And I realized that uh, he is affiliated with another documentarian that we've talked about on the show, uh, Russell Tiller, or Tiller Russell. Tiller Russell, I think. It's a weird name. But he uh, he made the uh, Operation Odessa documentary oh, yeah. about the guys trying to buy the submarine. I still recommend made that. the Night Stalker documentary. Yep, amazing. So he's got one on... Uh, Amazon that's David Holdhouse, Tiller Russell joint called The Last Narc, and it's about uh well did you watch Narcos I Mexico? Loved it. I love all the so narcos. it's the true life story of wow. that. And when I watched that, I was like, 
I don't, this doesn't seem like anything I've ever heard of. Is this the real story? Like, why is El Chapo just like a grunt in this story? Dude, that's the real story. And the last narc tells the story of how the Guadalajara cartel, these three drug lords, how they basically like plotted this murder of Kiki uh, Camarena, which is in the show. And uh, it kind of explains all of the crazy just it's just twists and turns that you couldn't even see coming like government involvement and how this whole thing kind of shakes down and eventually ends with el chapo being the head of the sinaloa drug cartel like it is so good so both of those sasquatch and the last narc that's uh, on hulu and amazon prime are excellent documentary recommendations if you're i am into that kind of thing and with a name like david holthouse uh you really only had one choice to become a documentarian or a house (laughs) (laughs) that's true i guess two choices then well always options yeah yep congratulations david you made the right choice uh well let's take a quick break and then when we get back we'll get into some content Hey, that's what I usually say. (laughs) I was just thinking that. (laughs) I'm leaving that in. (laughs) What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume Podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, graciously, thank you for allowing me to play us back in. <laughs> so <laughs> what have you got for us today, man? You haven't, usually you like kind of drop a hint or something, but uh, I guess you're too busy uh, e-foiling to really talk to old Josh these last <laughs> yeah, few days. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I, I know there's been a lot of really cheerful stuff in the news lately, so I thought I'd kind of temper uh, all the all the excited optimism that we're all feeling in the world today with a piece of content that's a little bit heavier, but one that... Well, that sounds just like (laughs) news that I'm used to, so I can't wait for you to lift me up. So um, I'm going to start with a question, but this isn't one of those funny ones. This is more of a deep and serious philosophical question. So Josh, do you think it's sometimes difficult to find meaning in your life depending on your circumstances? Um, I mean, I can imagine that, um, I don't know how, I don't know how you subscribe to this platitude, but you know, when people are like, 
oh, everything happens for a reason. Like, I've always thought that things just happen. And then if you're kind of like a forward-looking, maybe an optimist, or maybe you just have good circumstances in your life, you'll find a good reason. And if you're like in a bad place in your life and you had a lot of tragedy, you might find a bad reason. So I think that, uh, like personally for me, that's not hard because I feel like my life, thankfully, has been fairly blessed. But I can see how it could definitely be a little overwhelming if you're like on hard, on hard times. And um, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't disagree with that. I, I sometimes question whether I believe in some sort of uh, purpose uh, or like things fitting together in a certain way or that is just something that we retroactively apply to the random events of our life. Um, but I think this is, uh, I, I have a book for you that I think sort of throws all that out the window and doesn't really try to find a, um, a make-believe or spiritualist look, but it's really a pragmatic way to give meaning to life uh, whether it is during times of uh, pleasure, success, happiness, or suffering, uh, finding meaning and purpose even in death. So before we get into it, I want to introduce this piece of content saying that like Breaking Bad, what I uh, last covered on the show, I consumed it for the second time recently. Now, second reading of this book wasn't really planned, but I was at work, and I just finished the paperback copy of The Accidental Time Machine, a sci-fi book that you had gifted me, and I had some really long flights coming up. So because I didn't have another book with me, I was basically stuck with what was on my phone. I think you know this, but I'm more of a physical book guy. I've tried the Kindle in the past. I've tried the iPhone. I personally prefer to read uh, with you know paperback or just something in my hands. You're a tree murderer. Uh, yes, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> I, I prefer the term. I just prefer uh, to murder the planet <laughs> as they extract all the lithium from my phone battery. <laughs> I prefer the term uh, tree corpse recycler. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very progressive. Very uh, optimistic yeah. of you. So nevertheless, uh, I do have a few books on my phone for my experimental days of reading the way that you do and honestly it works out in my favor because every once in a while um i'll need a book and i only have my phone and also if you're reading when flying for work uh the most convenient way of reading a book is is actually on your iphone there's a clip on the yoke of the boeing that literally holds my iphone perfectly at the top there's a rectangular bump on my phone case that keeps it from sliding off the yoke and it's you know it's out of the way it doesn't interfere with anything uh it's just like right there if i want to read during during the downtime during cruise when we're not really um performing any important duties so my point of you telling my point of uh, my point of this of me telling you this kind of is a long-winded way of saying that uh i was flying with several captains recently that saw that I was reading something. Of course, they also had reading material, whether it was a book or a magazine. And so we'd exchange pleasantries and kind of chat about what we're reading. And to my surprise, over the month, month and a half that I was rereading this book, not a single one of these captains that I was flying with during this time had even heard of this book, let alone read it. Now, this 
shocked me. I mean, this is a piece of literature that I consider an absolute must read. Not only has it had a huge impact on my life, but according to a survey conducted by the Library of Congress, this particular book belongs to a list of the 10 most influential books in the United States, possibly one of the most top most influential books ever. Uh, As of 1997, 16 million copies were translated into 24 languages. Um, Now, fortunately, I am happy to report that when this book just recently came up uh, post skydiving uh, boogie, but in the continuation of the Minnesota trip, my crew ball members and best friends, Mike and Alyssa, were not only aware of this book, but they absolutely loved it. And of course, Mike and Alyssa, they're total dream livers they're paving various pathways to success happiness adventure and meaning and the book that i am talking about is man's search for meaning by victor frankel well now you're making me feel bad because i have not read this (laughs) have you heard of it very excited to hear about it have you heard of this This actually the the first time i may just not be plugged into the zeitgeist because I have not heard of this world's most influential book. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not out to make anybody feel bad. Um, and when I say, you know, not a single captain that I flew with that heard of this, I only flew with like three different captains on that trip. All of them fantastic, educated. They were all reading, you know, different, different pieces of literature. Um, so, but I, I was surprised. I thought that this was on kind of everybody's, everybody's list. Um, so if anything, you are making them feel better uh, because you're a professional contentologist. And uh, and so I'm excited to bring this into your purview for sure. Well, contentologist also, uh, based on this very small sample size that we have, the two of us, <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean it's not a real thing. It is a real thing. But we, we do tend to travel in uh, particular lanes and with reading i tend to lean more towards fiction and it seems that you tend to lean toward uh, more towards nonfiction. definitely and i also lean towards the murder of trees yep. as you so you graciously pointed out undoubtedly responsible for global warming all by yourself <laughs> that is what the uh talking heads on tv tell me so imagine being a medical doctor Okay, a psychiatrist, in fact. Your life's work since you graduated high, high school was finding the central motivational force, the driving force in human beings. You studied medicine, you studied neurology, psychiatry, you looked to understand depression, suicide. Uh, you even had correspondence with the imperfect but nevertheless undoubtedly influential father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. You've dedicated your life to understanding happiness, purpose, and meaning. You're even working on a manuscript. This is like your life's work. It's You're finally reaching this momentous occasion where you can share this thesis, this idea with the world, uh, that meaning, meaning was the central motivational force in human beings. But soon you find yourself in the midst of possibly the absolute worst conditions human beings have ever endured in history the Auschwitz concentration camp. This is the real life premise, the actual backdrop that occurred before man's search for meaning has ever seen the light of day. This is the story of Viktor Frankl. 
Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about his background. Some of this is in the book. Some of it isn't. Um, but I do, you know, the book is really focused. The, the stories of Auschwitz are more focused on what meaning and purpose can be taken from the suffering that he endured. But I did a little extracurricular reading, watched some really fascinating interviews. I'll put the link uh, to the YouTube video that I watched. I think it's one of Viktor Frankl's last interviews. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. If you read the book and you want to dive a little bit more into his background, I highly recommend it. So Frankl, uh, he's Austrian. Of course, he's Jewish. And he'd actually just begun a private practice in 1937. But the Nazi annexation of Austria in 1938 limited his ability to treat patients. In 1940, he became the head of the neurology department at Rothschild uh, Hospital. It was the only hospital in Vienna that was still admitting Jews. And he was actually at the time helping numerous patients avoid the Nazi euthanasia program that targeted the mentally disabled right up until his deportation into the concentration camps. Oh my God. In 1942... Uh, this was nine months after marrying his wife, Frankel, and the rest of his family. Were, they were sent to the first of four different concentration camps where his father died of starvation and pneumonia. Uh, two oh. years later, Frankel and the surviving members of his family were taken to Auschwitz, where his mother and brother were gassed. Uh, his wife died later of typhus. Now, this is a very common and horrible cause of death for camp victims during this time. So that was in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. That's where his wife died. But Frankel was unaware of her death um, until after he, you know, years later. And he wrote about the hope that he held of reuniting with her and the meaning that that gave him during his time in the concentration camps. Um, so over three undoubtedly horrible years, Viktor Frankel spent time in four concentration camps in horrific conditions, like I said, possibly the worst that humans have ever seen. Uh, the entire time he was on a razor's edge of survival, and he absolutely knew it. Sometimes, according to him, it was his mental attitude, uh, you know, remaining positive, having hope, even in these conditions that kept him alive. Other times, as he clearly points out, it was simply luck of the draw. So uh, one of the stories, I'm paraphrasing here, but he last minute decided to stay uh, in Auschwitz with these prisoners that were sick with typhus. And there was like another um, truckload or maybe it was a train that was taking a lot of other concentration camp prisoners to supposedly another camp with better conditions. And you know, people were trying to convince him to position himself within this group because you could kind of anticipate these sorts of things. You would listen to rumors. You would try to get it to the front of the group or, you know, look as healthy as you could so that you were eligible to be taken to this labor camp um, and be at kind of the front so of the line horrifying. for sure. But, you know, oh and, and people thought that he was he was uh, um basically had a death sentence staying back with the typhus patients. Um, and it's only later when he discovered that all those prisoners were duped and they in fact had sealed their own fates and they were being sent to the gas chambers. So, I mean, it, it, what was uh -huh. his, what was his reason for staying back? You know, he was, he just trying to help the sick 
patients? I, I think, um, if I remember correctly, because there was there's multiple times in the book where he has, you know, there's there's this sort of like, do I go this way or do I go that way? Or do I trade, you know, my last cigarette for a piece of bread? Will that help me to survive one more day? What will happen tomorrow? I mean, you're liver- living moment to moment, basically, in these camps. Um, if I remember correctly, that particular story, he had made the decision to just leave his life up to fate. Like he was tired of mm. trying to find, you know, ways to survive because he just like saw the futility in it. Like a lot of people would try to determine their circumstances and it didn't really work out in some cases. And so at this point it was almost like a surrendering and, you know, staying back. But I, I think that, you know, he, he holds a lot of, um, admiration for the people like he saw the the best of humanity he saw the worst of humanity and he saw people that literally would give up their last opportunity for surviving uh, their last bit of food to somebody that they they knew wouldn't make it um so he saw these like l- these real life saints in concentration camps that were just like dedicating their last moments to taking care of the sick or um, the unwell. Just imagine like the, the depth and the breadth of human potential that was lost in concentration camps. I mean, this guy sounds, I mean, if he, if he wrote this highly influential book, he's, he's clearly like a, and he's a doctor. He's clearly like a, a great mind. And it's just such a tragedy just how many people were lost that had the potential to be, you know, to further humanity. And it's just, uh, you know, it's like, think about like Einstein escaping from Nazi occupied Germany Mm -hmm. and, you know, how much of a loss to the world it would have been if he'd been taken. And, uh, you know, it really puts into perspective, like just how, how lucky he was to make it through. Oh, it's, and it's insane. Clearly he made a huge impact on the world. He definitely did. And, and, um, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely, um, I think works from this time period that have been influential, that have had an impact on society. Um, I, th- I think this is this is up there. I mean, I think that this is really at the top. And it's really, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, there is really some amazing uh, wisdom. But we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting about this, uh, in terms of his, his life being sort of up to fate or up to happenstance, um, one of the ways that you couldn't really determine your circumstances and was sort of luck of the draw was these capos. So, you know, he talks about like a capo just taking a, a liking to him when it like when it came time to serve Frankel some soup, you know, this capo would dip the ladle just a little bit deeper into the bowl to get like a pea or two into the soup. It's just a little bit more nourishment extending his life. But um, something that's really interesting that uh, I want to talk about capos so for those that don't know what a capo is, because I, I didn't before reading Man's Search for Meaning, 
These are prisoners that were assigned by the SS guards to supervise forced labor or carry out administrative tasks. So the, their status oh. is elevated in, you know, in a way in this camp. And, you know, I had an image in my mind of like these Nazi guards standing watch at these concentration camps, right? Or force, forcing prisoners to march or um, perform labor, whatever. And that's kind of, I think, like Hollywood imagery, I think, is like embedded in my mind. Well, Frankel really paints a picture of reality. And this reality is one in which Capos, it's these fellow prisoners who are assigned to be both a prisoner and a guard. Uh, they had they Yikes. had much more direct contact with other prisoners. And they were absolutely known for their brutality toward other prisoners. Imagine the Stockholm syndrome they started. Well, develop. you know, it's that. I mean, the the phenomenon of the the brutality of the capos or the capos. The this was the real life inspiration for the Milgram experiment um, that was conducted, I think, around twenty years later in the nineteen sixties. Um, and you know, Milgram that examined the way in which people respond to authority figures. Later, there was the controversial Stanford prison experiment in the nineteen seventies. Um, you know, so 30 years after World War II, they were trying to figure out if, like, being assigned these roles changed people's behavior. And, uh, you know, it, I think it's I think it stands that having these sort of roles can change people in very predictable and, and unfortunate ways. And this was witnessed firsthand in Auschwitz. So I do want to read an excerpt uh, from the book. Because one of the things that really sticks out to me that is not about the meaning necessarily, it's um, and it's also not just about the suffering. There's there's these little bits and pieces in here, and I'm sure everybody's going to be different when they read Man's Search for Meaning. Um, it's so densely packed with such incredible nonfiction prose of his experience um, that I think everybody's going to get a little bit something different. But one of the things that I really liked that really jumped out at me is, I mean, he flat out states that there are uh, good Nazis, right? And there's bad prisoners. Like just because somebody is wearing an SS uniform doesn't determine whether they're good or evil. And just because somebody is a Holocaust victim or, so or a prisoner of a concentration camp doesn't necessarily mean that they're good. And this might seem like a controversial thought right but these aren't my words uh, these are it seems pretty obvious <laughs> yeah honestly. i mean definitely but you know you, it's once again it kind of breaks the mold of that um standardized uh hollywood imagery um but this is a part that i really liked and saved for the show uh, a human being is not one thing among others things determine each other but man is ultimately self-determining what he becomes within the limits of endowment and environment he has made out of himself. In the concentration camps, for example, in this living laboratory and on this testing ground, we watched and witnessed some of our comrades behave like swine while others behaved like saints. Man has both potentialities within himself. Which one is actualized depends on decisions, but not on conditions. So I like the idea that um, we can... Uh, we can be the master of our own fate, if you will. I think that's what he's arguing there. So let me uh, turn this a little bit positive. 
Um, <laughs> All right. I was waiting. So I think it's obviously really important to do our best to understand, acknowledge, and hopefully learn from the atrocities that were committed in the past. Um, but even more than that, I think we can find meaning. We can find purpose in reading about life in Auschwitz, the way that Viktor Frankl found meaning even in concentration camps. So Frankl, he concludes that the meaning of life is found in every moment of living and that life never ceases to have meaning, even in suffering, even in death. Now, this meaning that he is referring to, it's going to be different for each person. And meaning is, it's going to be as unique as the person and that person's circumstances. So it's obviously going to change depending on the time in that person's life or what's going on. But according to Frankel, the meaning of life always changes, but it never ceases to be. So one of the other inspirational um, little juicy bits of wisdom uh, that uh, is attributed to Frankel, this quote I really like, it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. So basically, we need to consider what life requires of us to find our meaning. Uh, a bit more about the book itself. It's broken up into two parts. Yeah, well, let me. I want to talk a little bit about the meaning <laughs> of life. because It's something that I think about a lot. Josh's uh, search for meaning. You're hearing it first, first on the show. I completely agree with the meaning being circumstantial. And like I've thought about like what is the meaning of my life? And based on this very privileged life that I live, I've felt for a long time that like my meaning is to collect experiences. And and like I will admit that is a very privileged thought because you know, I feel I never feel more alive than when I'm doing something like skydiving or even you know spending an afternoon with my daughters and watching their mind develop or you know just uh something like what you're talking about like the e-foil like all these these are all experiences that like really speak to me but i can imagine that shifting so rapidly if the tenuous circumstances that we all live in were to change you know if all of a sudden life were strictly about survival, I would have an entire different priority set and I would feel day to day, you know, the the meaning would be protecting my family and my loved ones and getting enough food and all the things that go along with keeping a, a human animal and the, the machine of our body operating. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about uh, before the show started, we didn't really, we'd, weren't really thinking about discussing this on the show, but we were talking about what's happening in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, one of the thoughts that I've had watching what's happening there is, uh, I mentioned this to you earlier, uh, how disturbing it is to me what's happening there right now with uh, the U.S. pulling out. And um, to me, really, the most disturbing aspect of it is imagining someone that's lived in Afghanistan their entire life, like maybe like an 18 or 19 year old lived their entire life under the U S occupation who had been there for the last 20 years. And then, um, when the U S all of a sudden it decides to pull the plug, 
the Taliban comes in and they reinstate Sharia law, which, you know, I, I think everyone is kind of aware of how horrifying it is, especially like to, to women. You know, it's like all of a sudden women can't be educated and, you know, people are getting their hands cut off and civilians are being held at RPG point for minor infractions. And just like the, the entire tonal shift that would come with that as far as like your meaning of life, you know, before when the U S was involved, like, you know, people may have found their meaning is like trying to rebuild the country or create a government or even just the day-to-day things that like you and I enjoy, you know, just like, Oh, having fun with my friends and going out into the mountains and exploring, Oh, just stay away from where the war is. But all of a sudden, you know, these people are thrust into this completely unfathomable environment where it's not, it may not even just be about survival, but you know, minute to minute, trying to find some way, some place to hide your family because all of a sudden you're like a target because you were helping the U.S. during the occupation. And that's this is like one of the, in a long time, one of the world events that's really affected me this way. And it really puts into perspective the things you're talking about because that could very easily have been any one of us. You know, we're just like so privileged to have been born where we are. And... I try not to take or not to take that for granted, like every day that I'm alive. Yeah. I mean, real talk, like one of the things that's really interesting about this book that is very this is just a very personal take for me um, is as a, you know, living a very privileged, uh, wonderful life. I still have had difficulties. I still have had times of suffering and I just being um, privileged and grateful and, and, you know, happy, um, by many, many metrics, many, many standards, it still helps to know that somebody found meaning in their suffering in far worse circumstances, possibly the worst possible. And it it helps me to deal with, you know, how can I find meaning in the times that I'm suffering because I'm, I'm barely suffering, right? Like, my problems, uh, you know, pale in comparison to living day-to-day in Auschwitz. So, like, there, I think that there's something here for everybody. Um, you don't have to be in a concentration camp, right, to appreciate the message here. Um, and I think that that's, but th- that's what is so important about this book is, like, he's saying... He he was experiencing the absolute worst suffering imaginable, and he still could find meaning with the right mental attitude, uh, with the right, you know, uh, doing the right actions, I think, is like something that he talks about. It's not just like some sort of mental platitude. It's like taking action to sort of live in this way of like solving a pro like what is the next problem? He said sometimes the meaning that he found he's he said sometimes like what life was asking him to do was to just suffer right like there's nothing else that could be done he just had to like suffer so he decided that he was going to suffer with dignity and that was the meaning that he found in that in that moment like it's so beautiful like it's so tragic but it's so incredible at the same time for sure really puts into perspective uh thinking you're suffering when you got to work that double shift at 711 <laughs> Right. Well, they keep asking me to come in. 
and <laughs> you haven't worked there for nigh on 20 years now it's i mean that the getting the 20 percent off the slurpee is hard to walk away from buddy well i guess uh that's why you loaded your pockets with slurpee <laughs> on the way out the door yeah they're like brett why didn't you just put it in a big gulp I was like, I didn't think about that. My <laughs> pants were just soaked. Absolutely <laughs> dripping. So, um, a little bit more about the book itself. It's broken up into two parts. So, part one is about his personal experiences in the concentration camps. Um, basically, it's his analysis of the state of mind and the psychological effects of being in the camps. The interesting thing about this, his point of view is he clearly sees the opportunity here to apply his beliefs and principles. It's not like he, um, you know, just came up with all this, this, uh, this way of thought before coming into the camps. Like he was already developing this idea, um, which is kind of an amazing circumstance. He really approaches this experience like a, like a scientist and a doctor. He does his best to convey these experiences from somewhat of a detached external viewpoint. Um, he's actually gotten a lot of, uh, there, I don't know if it's a lot, but I did read that there has been some criticism that his analysis seems a little bit cold. Um, I did not get that, but I'm throwing that out there. That That is an interesting take. So part two, he then dives deep into his ideas of meaning, and it's this theory that he calls logotherapy. The premise being an, ex- an existential analysis Um, can help a patient self-identify their will to meaning, is what he calls it, and that striving to find meaning in life is the primary and most powerful motivating and driving force in humans. So a quote from Nietzsche, uh, it's it's often shared in Man's Search for Meaning. It sums up his ideas pretty nicely, which it's, I don't know if you've heard this, but he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Now, I haven't heard that, but... I can definitely see that. It's good. Uh, Now, you should get your life advice from me. I am a mere contentologist. The only thing I am qualified to do is recommend content to you. You need to get your life advice from Viktor Frankl, a man who didn't just randomly come up with some great quotable quotes to print on mugs or put in your Instagram captions. Um, (laughs) I mean, this is somebody that was already spending literally years of his life like a decade and a half before ending up in a concentration camp, trying to understand the meaning of all this. And then, you know, ending up in Auschwitz, a place where he literally witnessed the best of humanity and, of course, the worst. And it is all captured in this must read Man's Search for Meaning. Don't be someone who has never read this incredible, life changing book. Don't be a Josh. <laughs> Or one of my captains. (laughs) Uh, To close out, I would like to share two more uh, Viktor Frankl quotes from the book. So first one is this. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. Ooh, I like that one. And finally... For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into songs by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning 
of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. And Josh, I love this book, Man's Search for Meaning. Truly one of the greatest pieces of literature in our time, and I am absolutely thrilled to bring it to the Content Clearinghouse. This sounds like something I need to read. And do you know how old he was when he said that quote? Was it like long after his concentration camp experience? No, no, no. So I think that quote um, was from Man's Search for Meaning, which I think was originally published in like 1948 or something like that. I mean, it is um, – he didn't wait long to, uh, to write Man's Search for Meaning. Now – Interestingly, the title was originally different. I thought I had it in my outline, but uh, I'm going to have to look it up just real quick because it is a total, like, Kruba Dream Liver style um, title. So, okay, I got it here. It was uh, published in 1946, and the original title was Nevertheless Saying Yes to Life. A psychologist experiences the concentration camp. So that was the original Whoa. title in German, basically the ger- the English translation from German. But eventually, it just became uh, "Man's Search for Meaning" is like the the common title. Yeah, it seems um, with that "nevertheless" bomb yeah. in there, <laughs> does seem very impactful. I mean, that's a that kind of changes the feeling of the title like man's search for meaning is so concise but like when you add nevertheless in there it seems like i I guess it's like more in line with what you're describing is like he's like finding the meaning despite everything that's happening not because exactly i love that nevertheless saying yes to life i'm a little disappointed that's not the the title still i really like that um that expression i guess yeah that's man this sounds really interesting, and I'm not like typically a huge nonfiction reader, but uh, this does sound like something I need to add to my queue. I can always count on you to bring the cerebral <laughs> to this show. I mean, like this one is probably the first thing in a long time where I was just sitting and listening because it's just like it. It seems so. I mean, it's so intense, but also like very compelling. It's very compelling. I yeah, will, Brett, uh, you know, is... let me share one more thing um, just as an aside. So on my second reading, I really felt like I dove deeply into the part one. And it's interesting. The first time I'd read it, um, I I really consumed the entire thing in very the same in the same way, like part one and part two were very captivating, very interesting. This second reading, it was all about part one for me. So please don't feel like when you pick up this book for a reread or a read for the first time, um, it is a short read. This is not a long book. Uh, Don't feel like you have to read both parts to get a lot from this book. They are totally separate sections. I do feel like part two is diving almost into a nuts and bolts um, of his psychotherapeutic methods, if you will. Um, a lot of people, I think, will get a lot just from reading part one. So just throwing that out there, I don't feel like anybody should feel any obligation. Um, it's not like a chapter one and a chapter two. It really is two distinct parts. 
so, you know, I just literally on this time I skimmed part two and I kind of like revisited his ideas. But for me, it was all about absorbing uh, his experiences again in part one, because I, I really felt like that's what's re- resonated um, with readers. But that's my opinion. That does seem like very the very compelling part Definitely. of the story, like hearing a firsthand account of a concentration camp from someone who is like an expert in the human totally. psyche. Totally. That's that seems interesting and probably a very unique take, something that hasn't been done. Yeah. Very often or maybe ever ever before. It might be the, the only book I, like this. I think so. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is I'm going to check this out for sure, Brett. Uh, Thanks for opening my eyes to how interesting the real world can be (laughs) instead of just uh, fantasizing about sci-fi military futures all the time. You're welcome. You can uh, always count on me, buddy. That I can. And you guys can count on us to be on social media. (laughs) Hey, you like that? Uh, You can check us out on social media at the Content Clearinghouse on Facebook and Instagram. Remember, we always post stuff and Brett writes funny captions. Uh, also, you can email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. I promise you Brett will read them <laughs> and get some of those on the show. Uh, we have a Discord channel. You can find the link in the show notes if you want to get on that there and chat directly with us. Otherwise, uh, stay tuned here in the Content Clearinghouse. We'll be back next week. Like I always say, bringing more great content right into your ear holes. good and bad people on both sides yes like in the nazi camp and in the in the uh amongst the prisoners yes that made me think about um remember we we covered uh generation war on the show quite a while ago it was that uh world war ii series that was told from the german side i had never really thought about the german soldiers being anything other than just like evil mindless automatons because they're just like such an iconic villain and it's like perfect cannon fodder for a video game right there right. nazis in there and you're not going to offend anyone <laughs> right totally but that show is all about um you know it's like this group of friends that uh are kind of like roped into the german war effort and some of them are into it some of them are not and uh the ones that are not are kind of like reluctant players and that that was also like an eye-opening piece of content for me because it made me realize like, well, we could very easily be part of an evil regime, like an an empire that's conquering the lands all around us, which don't get me wrong, that's not what you, the U.S. does. But if we were in a country like that and we were drafted into the army we wouldn't really have any other choice. You would pretty much have to go along with what was happening. And, you know, whether you end up being concentration camp guard and, you know, enjoying your work, or if you're just a reluctant soldier on the front lines, you know, that there is like a wide swath of human experience and motivation in there. And, uh, yeah, like I thought generation war was really important piece of content, you know, for making me realize that. And now you, you bringing it up here, it really like just kind of drives home like that's really what was happening. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think we've talked about that on the show before. And I I do think like I do recognize that there's probably just a lot of like, you know, young people that are just being 
um, they're just absorbing this like German propaganda and they're seeing all this information that's dehumanizing the enemy, which is something that, you know, every, like every country has done if for every war, probably, I mean, the United Number States one rule of war, United States has done this. The Japanese has done this. Like everybody ha- does this. Um, so I realized like, there's probably a lot of people that are victims right like they're not just these like evil they're they're people like us like that's what's so scary about this is like it could happen to any of us if we don't have our guard up and question uh question things question authority but you know at some point you there's there has to be some level of accountability and it's like what is that point like when you are driving a truck full of human beings um to be like you know, tricked basically to going into a room where they think they're going to be showered off and instead it's carbon monoxide coming in. Like at what point can't like, do you realize you're committing like horrible evil acts? I don't know. It's that's why it's, it's always really interesting to hear really a first person's take um, from a, you know, Auschwitz victim from a prisoner that kind of understands that things aren't always black and white. So it's because that's where I want to get my information from. Cause like, I'm, I'm sure he has his own biases, right? But he really is. He really was there and he really was a victim and he really was trying to take a, a super objective approach. And so I really respect the way that he sort of conveys these ideas. I think his words are really valuable. Yep, I think it's always good to get your information from the gray. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> from the gray aliens, that is. Hey. Hey. Tie it all back that's in. That's right. 